What's up, everybody? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another episode of the Capo Podcast. I am going to be doing Fahrenheit 451 this evening, but before I get to that, I um, wanted to talk about some other stuff. Uh, it's the end of 2022. As I'm recording this, it's December 14th. I'll probably put this out tomorrow, but um, going into the holidays, I probably won't have the time or the inclination to do a, another podcast before the end of the year, and so this kind of is the, this is probably going to be the final episode of the year, of 2022, and for the podcast, it was a, I started this podcast on January 1st, so been doing it for exactly a year almost. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Started with the books and did all the books and then got into this this other stuff, this lecture stuff. And honestly, I got more I got more traction than I thought I would with the podcast. Um, had way more listeners than I thought would tune in, especially on on certain episodes. So that means um, I am going to be continuing this into 2023. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm gonna try to up the quality as we go into the the new year. Um, gonna try to. I would really like to do more episodes with guests instead of just solo episodes. Because um, almost everything I do is solo episodes, but the ones where I'm with my friends are are more fun for me. Um, and they get uh, most of the time they get more views, especially up front, than my other stuff. So, going to try to do some more interviews or or just podcast with friends, just doing different stuff, and maybe not always talking about, you know, book stuff or, or novel stuff. The other thing I've decided to do, be, kind of because of the podcast being more successful than I thought, I've spent the last year looking for a literary agent for the books, and I've sent it off to a whole bunch of different literary agents, and if you don't know, the publication world is is a difficult world to get your foot in. Um, There are a lot of people out there that are writing books and sending books in to literary agents, and it's kind of like making it big in music. It's it's a hard thing to do, um, hard thing to get an agent. So I've decided I'll probably have just as good of luck uh, if I self-publish. And that's what I'm going to do in 2023. I'm going to start with the... I was going to do all the books together as one big book, but uh, I think it'll be better for everyone if I release the books one at a time. Because uh, if I do them all together, that's one really big book. And books that are over 100,000 words usually kind of wear people out. So I'm going to release them one at a time, starting with book one in January sometime. Uh, So be looking for that. I'll be uh, shamelessly shilling it on the podcast and um, on other stuff. I'm going to try to increase my viewership going into the new year. Um, so if you are somebody out there who listens and enjoys the podcast, share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it with 
you know, complete strangers on the street. I don't care. I just want to, I want listens and views. And uh, if you don't follow me on social media, go ahead and do that. And, you know, like everything that I post and just stoke my ego and my vanity. Um, on Twitter, I'm on the Twitters. I'm at Engelman Samuel. And uh, I've also have an Instagram. And on Instagram, it is Capo Cattle Co. So find me on the interwebs and follow me there for more just crack up um, good times, funny jokes, you know, and just the best political analysis you'll find of ridiculous news stories. But without further ado, um, we're going to jump into Fahrenheit 451. And I'm going to do what I normally do. I'm going to start by reading a portion of the book. I'm not going to start with the very beginning. I'm going to do kind of what I did in um, 1984. I've chosen what I think is, if not the most important part, uh, one of the most important parts of Fahrenheit 451, and it kind of sets the tone of what the book is about and what the major conflict in the book is. So, here we go. I'm going to pause it because I need a moment to kind of change into narrator mode. And here we go. Montag stepped inside and the door shut. Sit down. Faber backed up, as if he feared the book might vanish if he took his eyes from it. Behind him, the door to the bedroom stood open, and in that room a litter of machinery and steel tools were strewn upon a desktop. Montag had only a glimpse before Faber, seeing Montag's attention diverted, turned quickly and shut the bedroom door, and stood holding the knob with a trembling hand. His gaze returned unsteadily to Montag, who was now seated with the book in his lap. The book? Where did you... I stole it. Faber, for the first time, raised his eyes and looked directly into Montag's face. You're brave. No, said Montag. My wife is dying. A friend of mine is already dead. Someone who may have been a friend was burnt less than 24 hours ago. You're the only one I know who might help me. To see. To see. Faber's hands itched on his knees. May I? Sorry. Montag gave him the book. It's been a long time. I'm not a religious man, but it's been a long time. Faber turned the pages, stopping here and there to read. It's as good as I remember. Lord, how they've changed it in our parlors these days. Christ is one of the family now. I often wonder if God recognizes his own son the way we've dressed him up, or is it dressed him down? He's a regular peppermint stick now, all sugar, crystal, and saccharine when he isn't making veiled references to certain commercial products that every worshipper absolutely needs. Faber sniffed the book. You know that books smell like nutmeg. Or some spice from a foreign land. I loved to smell them when I was a boy. Lord, there were a lot of lovely books once, before we let them go. Faber turned the pages. Mr. Montag, you are looking at a coward. I saw the way things were going a long time back. I said nothing. 
I'm one of the innocents who could have spoken up and out when no one would listen to the guilty, but I did not speak, and thus became guilty myself. And when finally they set the structure to burn the books using the firemen, I grunted a few times and I subsided, for there were no others grunting or yelling with me. By then, now it's too late. Faber closed the Bible. Well, suppose you tell me why you came here. Nobody listens anymore. I can't talk to the walls because they're yelling at me. I can't talk to my wife. She listens to the walls. I just want someone to hear what I have to say. And maybe if I talk long enough, it'll make sense. I want you to teach me to understand what I read. Faber examined Montag's thin, blue-jowled face. How did you get shaken up? What knocked the torch out of your hands? I don't know. We have everything we need to be happy, but we aren't happy. Something's missing. I look around. The only thing I positively knew was gone was the books I'd burned in 10 or 12 years. So I thought that books might help. You're a hopeless romantic, said Faber. It would be funny if it were not so serious. It's not books you need. It's some of the things that were once in the books. The same things could be in the parlor families today. The same infinite detail and awareness could be projected through the radios and televisions. But it's not. No. No, it's not the books you're looking for. Take it where you can find it. In an old photograph. Old motion pictures. In old friends. Look for it in nature. Look for it in yourself. Books were only one type of receptacle where we stored a lot of the things we were afraid we might forget. There's nothing magical in them at all. The magic is only in what books say, how they stitch the patches of the universe together into one garment for us. Of course, you couldn't know this. Of course, you can, still can't understand what I mean when I say all this. You are intuitively right. That's what counts. Three things are missing. Number one, do you know why books such as this were so important? Because they have quality. And what does the word quality mean? To me, it means texture. This book has pores. It has features. This book can go under a microscope. You'd find life under the glass, streaming past an infinite profusion. The more pores the more truthfully recorded details of life per square inch you can get on a sheet of paper, the more literary you are. That's my definition, anyway. Telling detail. Fresh detail. The good writers touch life often. The mediocre ones run a quick hand over her. And the bad ones rape her and leave her there for the flies. So now you see why books are hated and feared, they show the pores in the face of life. The comfortable people who only want wax moon faces, poreless, hairless, expressionless. We are living in a time when flowers are trying to live on flowers, 
instead of growing on good rain and black loam. Even fireworks, for all their prettiness, come from the chemistry of the earth. Yet somehow, we think we can grow feeding on flowers and fireworks without completing the cycle back to reality. Do you know the legend of Hercules and Antaeus, the giant wrestler whose strength was incredible so long as he stood firmly on the earth? But when he was held rootless in midair by Hercules, he perished easily. If there isn't something in that legend for us today, in this city, in our time, then I'm completely insane. Well, there we have our first thing, as I said, quality, texture of information. And the second, leisure. Oh, but we've plenty of off hours. Off hours, yes. But time to think? If you're not driving a hundred miles an hour at a clip where you can't think of anything else but danger, then you're playing some game, or you're sitting in some room where you can't argue with the four-wall televisor. Why? The televisor is real. It is immediate. It has dimension. It tells you what to think, and it blasts it in. It must be right. It seems so right. It rushes you on so quickly to its own conclusions your mind hasn't to have time to protest. What nonsense. Only the, the family is people. I beg your pardon? My wife says that books aren't real. Well, thank God for that. You can shut them. Say, hold on a moment. You play God to it. But who has ever torn himself from the claw that encloses you when you drop a seed in a TV parlor? It grows you any shape it wishes. It is an environment as real as the world. It becomes and is the truth. Books can be beaten down with reason. But with all my knowledge and skepticism, I've never been able to argue with a 100-piece symphony orchestra, full color, three dimensions, and being in and part of those incredible parlors. As you see, my parlor is nothing but four plaster walls. And here, he held out two small rubber plugs for my ears when I ride the subway jets. Denim's dentrifists. They toil not, neither do they spend, said Montag, eyes shut. Where do we go from here? What books help us? Only if a third necessary thing could be given us. Number one, as I said, quality of information. Number two, leisure to digest it. Number three, the right to carry out actions based on what we learn from the interaction of the first two. And I hardly think a very old man and a fireman turned sour could do much this late in the game. I can get books. Yeah, you're running a risk. That's the good part of dying. When you've nothing to lose, you run any risk you want. There. You've said an interesting thing, laughed Faber, without having read it. Are things like that in books? But it came off the top of my mind. All the better. You didn't fancy it up for me or anyone, even yourself. Montag leaned forward. This afternoon I thought that if it turned out the books were worthwhile, we might get a press and print some extra copies. We? You. And I. Oh, no. Faber sat up. But let me tell you my plan. If you insist on telling me, I must ask you to leave. But aren't you interested? Not if you start talking the sort of talk that might get me burnt for my trouble. 
The only way I could possibly listen to you would be if somehow the fireman's structure itself could be burnt. Now, if you suggest that we print extra books and arrange to have them hidden in firemen's houses all over the country so that the seeds of suspicion would be sown among the arsonists, uh, bravo, I'd say. Plant the books, turn in the alarm, and see the firemen's houses burn. Is that what you mean? Faber raised his brows and looked at Montag as if he were seeing a new man. I was joking. If you thought it would be a plan worth trying, I'd have to take your word it would help. You can't guarantee things like that. After all, when we had all the books we needed, we still insisted on finding the highest cliff to jump off of. But we do need a breather. We do need knowledge. And perhaps in a thousand years, we might pick smaller cliffs to jump off of. The books are to remind us what asses and fools we are. They're Caesar's praetorian guard, whispering as the parade roars down the avenue, Remember, Caesar, thou art mortal. Most of us can't rush around, talk to everyone, know all the cities of the world. We haven't time, money, or that many friends. The things you're looking for, Montag, are in the world but only in the way the average chap will ever see 90% of it is in a book. Don't ask for guarantees, and don't look to be saved by any one thing, person, machine, or library. Do your own bit of saving, and if you drown, at least die knowing that you were headed for shore. Baber got up and began to pace the room. Well, asked Montag, you're absolutely serious. Absolutely. It's an insidious plan, if I do say so myself. Faber glanced nervously at his bedroom door. To see the firehouses burn all across the land, destroyed as hotbeds of treason. The salamander devours his tail. Oh, God. I have a list of firemen's residences everywhere, with some sort of underground. You can't trust people. That's the dirty part. You and I, and who else will set the fires? Aren't there professors? Like yourself, former writers, historians, linguists, dead or ancient. The older the better. They'll go unnoticed. You know dozens. Admit it. No. Oh. There are many actors alone who haven't acted Paradello or Shaw or Shakespeare for years because their plays are too aware of the world. We could use their anger, and we could use the honest rage of those historians who haven't written a line for 40 years. True. We might form classes in thinking and reading. Yes. But that would just nibble the edges. The whole culture shot through. The skeleton needs melting and reshaping. Good God, it isn't as simple as just picking up a book you laid down half a century ago. Remember, the firemen are rarely necessary. The public itself stopped reading of its own accord. You firemen provide a circus now, and then, which... Buildings are set, and crowds gather for the pretty blaze, but it's a small sideshow indeed, and hardly necessary to keep things in line. So few want to be rebels anymore, and out of those few, most, like myself, scare easily. Can you dance faster than the white clown, shout louder than Mr. Gimmick, and the parlor families? If you can, you'll win your way, Montag. In any event, you're a fool. People are having fun. Committing suicide. Murdering. A bomber flight had been moving east all the time they talked, 
and only now did the two men stop and listen, feeling the great jet sound tremble inside themselves. Patience, Montag. Let the war turn off the families. Our civilization is flinging itself to pieces. Stand back from the centrifuge. There has to be someone ready when it blows up. What? Men quoting Milton, saying, I remember Sophocles, reminding the survivors that man has his good side, too? They will only gather up their stones and hurl at each other, Montag. Go home. Go to bed. Why waste your final hours racing about your cage, denying that you're a squirrel? Then you don't care anymore. I care so much I'm sick. And you won't help me. Good night. Good night. So, I picked a pretty long section there to read, but every bit of it I feel like is important. It gives you a good sense of what is going on. Um, so, for the rest of the episode, what I want to do is go through the three parts of the book from beginning to end. Now, you've already met a couple of the characters, and I'll reference them again when we get there, but... Hearing all that should give you a, a better view of the book that I describe. And I'm trying to keep this one a little bit shorter than 1984, go into a little less depth, and hit a little more kind of points of interest to the story. That way, if you're one of my old students or a student that wasn't one of mine, whoever you are, if you're somebody who has to take a test on this or or needs to just listen to an analysis or a summary, this can help you out that way, and I won't get too deep into the weeds. So, book one, the first of three parts in this book, is called The Hearth and the Salamander. And the first guy you meet is Guy Montag. And Montag is the guy that we were having the exchange with a second ago. He's the first man you meet, and he is the protagonist of the novel. But when we first meet him, we see this very ominous and sinister guy. He is a fireman, but in this world, uh, the job of the fireman is to set things on fire, to burn down homes and sometimes burn people alive. Um, and in the introduction, he's in love with his job. He's in love with the fire. It's almost hypnotizing to him. He's in love with the smell of kerosene and the, and the feeling of the flames and the heat. And he is reveling in the burning of someone's house and burning books. The second character you meet um, is Clarice McClellan. And Clarice is a mysterious young girl. Um, I think it says how young she is. I think she's 17 in the book. I might be wrong, but I think that's how old she is. So she's very young uh, compared to Montag, who is around 30 or whatever. Uh, she is in this world of just blackness and smoke and fire and concrete and steel. Clarice is something very different. She is white and pure, like snow. She cares about strange things like dew on the grass and looking at the moon. And she thinks the world moves way too quickly. And for Montag, she is like this beautiful white flower blooming in the midst of an industrial park. She fascinates him, and she makes him uncomfortable. Now, there's kind of 
a lot of people will kind of put her in this classification of a love interest to Montag. And I don't really, I don't think that that is where Bradbury was going with it. It's, it seems like Clarice is flirting with Montag, but the reason Montag feels uncomfortable around Clarice is not really, it's not sexual. It is the fact that Clarice is so different than everyone else and seems to know something he doesn't know and just acts in a different way. Uh, the next person we meet is Montag's wife, Mildred. And Mildred is an example of the typical inhabitant of this new dystopian world. She lives in a world of constant distraction and drugs. She always has earbuds in her ears that tune out everything around her. She stares at screens in her house all day long. Um, at night, she stares at the ceiling, takes drugs, and has her, her earbuds in her ears. In the book, they're called seashells. And early in the book, Mildred tries unsuccessfully and maybe unintentionally to kill herself. And she ODs on these drugs. And men come to the apartment and they pump her stomach and they give her a blood transfusion. And they do all of this very kind of... They're very nonchalant about it. And the, the implication is this happens all the time in this society. People are constantly ODing and constantly basically committing suicide all the time. Um, and it shows us that Mildred isn't an exception. She's the rule. And that Clarice is the exception to that rule. Early in the book, during this... ODing of his wife, Montag has a moment, and he looks down at his wife, and it's a very transformative moment that's going to drive him forward into the story, and it's the first conflict in the novel. There's lightning going on in Storm, uh, the city is, lightning's cracking all over, and Montag is just struck by this emotion and feeling and, uh, panic. And probably for the first time in a very long time, he has this individual original thought. And that thought is that he's not happy. Uh, something is wrong. Something is wrong with his life. Something is wrong with his world. Something's wrong with his wife. There's something very wrong. Now the title of part one, The Hearth and the Salamander, tells us a little bit about what's going on. The salamander is Montag's job. It's the fire truck that they drive. They call them salamanders. But it's more than a job to Montag. It has been what has defined him in the world. And the hearth is Montag's home. A hearth is a fireplace. And in the old days, it was always in the center of the home because it warmed the whole house. But a hearth is more than just a fireplace. It's used as a representation for the center, the heart of a man's home. And that's not their house. It's literally the home. It's Montag's wife because it's his family. And Montag's hearth, his wife Mildred, has something very wrong with her. And there's also something very wrong with Montag's job. And he comes to these two conclusions. 
The next thing we meet, or thing, character, it's a thing. It's called the Hound. And the Hound is a mechanized kind of robot dog that the firemen use to track people. And I say dog, it has six legs or eight legs like a spider, and they call it the Hound, but it's it's a robot. It's a horrifying robot, and it's trained to track and kill and the firemen, uh, they basically give it the chemical, uh, oh, kind of like a fingerprint. Like everybody has a, a chemical solution to their body, this formula that is independent to them, and every animal has this. And so they feed that to the hound as kind of a, a computer algorithm or data or whatever, and then the hound is turned on and like a hound tracks the person or animal or whatever it is down and kills it. It stabs it with a needle and kills it. And so the firemen play this game in the firehouse where they will like give the hound the signature of a of a cat or a rat or something and then they'll bet on how long it'll take it to track that down and kill it. Um and the hound makes this aggressive gesture towards Montag in the book. And Montag tells his fire chief, uh, Beatty, about it, and Beatty tells him that he's going to have it checked out. And Beatty is a very big character, but we're going to talk about him in a second. So I'm going to pass over him for now. Um, the next kind of important character is this old woman. And they go to burn this house, Montag and all the firemen, and there's an old woman who has a, just an entire library of books in her house. And they try to tell her to leave. They try to drag her out. And she refuses to leave after they have doused her entire house in kerosene. And she produces this match out of nowhere as a kind of standoff. Um, and finally, uh, Beatty drags... Montag out of the house and the old lady lights herself and her house on fire and it's this sort of protest and this causes the that's basically the catalyst for the interaction of Montag and Faber who is this old professor that Montag met one time in passing and after this woman after Montag watches this woman burn herself alive and is staring her in the face when she does it uh, between that and his wife's attempted suicide, Montag is starting to have some doubts. Uh, and he's starting to doubt his profession. He wonders why he's unhappy. Uh, he wonders what lies he has been told, uh, what history he's been told that's not actually history. And all of that drives him to seek out Faber, who we'll talk about again here in a second. Now, after Montag has his little doubt, Beatty picks up on that. And Beatty is the fire chief. He is the villain of the book. Um, he is uh, this guy that tries to talk Montag back into the fold. He tries to bring Montag back into the fireman by kind of feeding him a little bit of information that he, th that he thinks will help Montag understand. So BD comes to Montag's house and he explains history to Montag. 
and he tells Montag that minorities and special interest groups got so offended by everything that everyone just stopped writing books. And now society is built around one thing, and that thing is happiness. And happiness is the only thing that matters. And the belief is that thinking makes people sad. And instead of thinking or reading, people are just given this hollow and empty entertainment. Races, reality television, sports, constant news, distractions, and drugs. And Beattie explain why Beattie explains to Montag why that is a good thing, why that is the best. He says that, you know, free thinkers have become pariahs in this society. And he tells Montag that he's read books and there's nothing important in them. Montag isn't sure why, but this explanation makes him decide to quit being a fireman. If everything is just about being happy, why isn't he happy? He doesn't understand... He doesn't quite understand how sinister the world is yet. He just knows that he's not happy and he doesn't know why. So after Beatty leaves, Montag reveals to you, the audience, and also Mildred, a secret. And Montag's secret is that he has been hoarding some books. Uh, At a few different houses, he has stolen books and shoved them into his shirt and has taken them home and hidden them in his air vents. And he, he doesn't understand why he has taken these books. He just has. And then at the end of part one, Montag opens up one of these books and reads it. And this is this revolutionary action but he doesn't quite realize it yet. I mean, he knows what he's doing is wrong and can get him in big trouble and get his house burned down. Um, he doesn't realize that he's become an enemy to the standing power structure. He's now an enemy of the state once he has kind of committed the sin of reading the book. Um, part two is called The Sieve and the Sand. And we see Montag as the sieve. And a sieve is uh, a screen that you pour, you know, rock or sand through to separate out larger pieces from smaller pieces. And Montag realizes he's like a sieve and the books are like sand. The knowledge and the ideas that are in them run right through him and he can't He can't hold on to it. He can't contain them. He doesn't know how. And so he reaches out to Professor Faber. And this is the part that we read. Professor Faber is this guy that he he met him once in a park, and he, he kind of knew that he was somebody who might be secretly hiding books or somebody who might have a, might have previously been a academic. And, um... He is convinced that Faber is the only person he knows that can help him. And as we read, Faber is cowardly, though. Faber believes that there's no point in bucking the system because it's an impossible task. The task that Montag is setting out to... Montag sees himself as kind of engaging in terrorism to try to bring down the power structure. And 
he wants to fight the power. Faber says that that's pointless, even though he still desires it himself. And kind of at the end of the section I read, you had that line by Faber. He says the whole culture is shot through. And what Faber's trying to explain to Montag is that the problem isn't the firemen. It is society at large. The culture is so broken, he explains, that it must be destroyed and remade. He thinks that they should wait for this nuclear war that's about to happen to turn off the televisions. And society, he thinks, will collapse into savagery, and people won't care about the books still for maybe a thousand years until they come back to these ideas. And because Faber believes that, well, it's not that Faber believes that. Faber knows that, but Montag doesn't quite grasp that yet. What Faber is telling Montag is the reality. There is no hope to overthrow the system. The system is going to have to completely collapse. And Montag shares his plan of, you know, putting books in firemen's houses. And Faber, he likes the idea, but he he doesn't want to help him. So what happens next is basically Montag blackmails Faber, threatens Faber into helping him. And the way Faber is going to help him is he is uh, going to be in his ear Faber gives Montag this tiny little earbud that is kind of a, a, a secret one. It's one you can't see. You shove it. It's a bullet you shove deep in your ear. And Faber is kind of can talk into Montag's head kind of like a, a, a voice that he hears. And so Montag leaves and Faber is going to listen to everything that Montag encounters and try to help him kind of navigate the world, give him wisdom. So Montag goes home, uh, and you can already, Montag is starting to come off the wheels already, or come off the rails. Uh, he's, he's kind of losing it. Um, he's so angry with society and everything is, is pushing him to madness at this point. And he goes home and his wife is hanging out with all her friend, all her friends, and they're all stupid and shallow and loud, and and they talk about nothing. They're they're just arguing about nonsense and talking about reality television. Um, they talk about this last election that they had, and all the women reveal that they voted for the candidate who was better looking, and that's the only reason they voted for him. And of course, this drives Montag to the point of anger. And um, what he does finally is he he comes out and produces a book and starts angrily reading poetry to the women. And this is like, it's as if Montag had done something just wildly offensive. Like he had, um, I don't know, sexually assaulted them almost uh, is how they how they see it. Um, and he reduces one of them completely to tears. Another one says that they'll, you know, she's never coming back to this house. They threaten to turn them into the, to the police. And Faber the whole time is talking in Montag's ear and like telling him, dude, what are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? You're ruining everything. Um, 
And finally, Montag kind of plays it off along with Mildred, um, and they lie and they say, like, oh, firemen are allowed to bring a book home every once in a while just so we can all see how ridiculous it is. And Faber talks Montag into throwing the, the book into a furnace and destroying it in front of the women so that uh, the situation is averted. But of course, if you can imagine, in this world, uh, Beatty catches on to this pretty quickly. Um, Montag goes into work, and he goes to face Beatty. And in this next exchange with Beatty, uh, we see Beatty as a as the devil, um, a figure of symbolically Satan. And it's Faber is in Montag's ear and is going to kind of listen to Beatty and help Montag argue with Beatty. And Montag thinks with Faber's help, uh, maybe he can intellectually outstep Beatty. But it's clear immediately that Beatty knows exactly what Montag is thinking before he even says anything. Beatty has apparently read every book. He can quote from books just as easily as, as Faber might be able to. And Beatty can quotes books at uh, Montag, uh, tries to convince him of how stupid all this is by quoting books to him. And there's this very biblical symbolism in this scene because Beatty is playing the part of the devil um, who is this villain that uses the truth mixed with lies to try to seem correct. And he tries to convince Montag into his way of thinking, but it's all a trick and a sleight of hand. Like the devil uh, in the desert tempting Jesus by quoting scripture at him. That's what this scene looks like. Um, next we have Faber as kind of the voice of God. And if Beatty is playing uh, the devil symbolically... Faber is kind of like this, well, let's not call it the voice of God. Let's say kind of an angel on his shoulder. So you have the, uh, in all the old movies or something where you have the character standing there and he has an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. That's what Faber is playing against Beatty. And Faber listens to everything Beatty said. And he tells Montag that he's heard all of those arguments and now he's going to present him with his own arguments that counter Beatty's arguments. And Faber is going to represent the truth and the beauty, uh, and Beatty is representing, you know, the anti-truth and the ugliness and the, the lies of the world. Um, and Faber, even if he doesn't believe in God, he believes in the truth, and he believes that the truth is changing and eternal. Um, Faber is this very, he would be a classically liberal, educated, uh, there's not many of these left classical liberals, they're all leftists now, and they don't really believe in all this stuff, but Faber is this classically educated liberal who believes that the truth is unchanging and eternal and that human nature is a fact of uh, our condition and it can't be manipulated. Um, Faber believes that the truth is like stone and Beatty believes 
that the truth is whatever he says it is, or whatever we all as a society decide it is, which is a classically far-left idea. Um, it is what the majority decides it is, instead of the truth being the truth. If everyone decides that the sky is green, Beattie says the sky is green, and the truth is like sand. This is very close to 1984 with Winston arguing with um, O'Brien. It's almost the exact same argument, or I mean it is the same argument in Fahrenheit 451 as it is in 1984. You know, truth against lies, uh, the idea of eternal higher natural truth versus the truth being this sort of postmodernist uh, Marxist idea of we can make the truth what we want it to be. If we all just, you know, if the majority decides it, it will be made to truth. So, it's the oldest fight in all of mankind. Truth versus anti-truth. Good versus evil. God versus the devil. And Montag has to decide which way he wants to go. And Faber tells Montag that even though he's going to to give him his view, which will be the truth, it's Montag that will have to decide which way he wants to jump or fall. Humanity has free will. And, of course, God speaks to us, but we get to decide whether or not we want to listen to the truth of what he has to say. And, kind of like Faber, God lets us decide for ourselves which way we want to go. Now, for Montag... Unfortunately, Beatty kind of makes thrust the choice upon him very quickly because even before Faber has a chance to really talk to Montag and give him all these truths that he's going to, Beatty receives this call at the fire station and Montag and all the men must answer the call and they jump down the fire pole and they go to the fire truck um, and they head out, and Beatty is driving the salamander, and he's got this big black, you know, fireman cloak on, and uh, it's flapping behind him in the wind as he drives, and it looks like bat wings, and it's just very kind of symbolic of the devil. It's reinforced in this final scene with Beatty maniacally laughing and driving down the, down the street in the salamander. Um, and where do they end up? Well, they pull up to Montag's house, and Montag's choice is you have to burn down your own house because we know about all the books, and we are, we're giving you this choice. Well, it's not even a choice. It's Montag is going to burn down his own house, and then they're going to send him to prison, presumably. Um, part three. And part three is called Burning Bright. And the beginning of part three, we figure out that Mildred has betrayed Montag. She is the one that turned him in for having books. That is how they know about the books in Montag's house. That's how we ended up here uh, in, the, in the end. And Mildred is leaving as Montag arrives with the other firemen. And Montag pleads with her, but she ignores him and gets in a taxi and drives away. And he'll never see her again. And it is this deep betrayal of Mildred 
that probably drives um, Montag to do what he does next. Uh, he does burn his house down, just as they kind of BD makes him do. And he goes through the whole house, he blasts it all, um, and then comes back and turns to BD. And Montag has this moment with BD where after he makes him burn the house down, um, obviously it's time for, for Montag to hand over the flamethrower and go quietly away to jail, or maybe to death, we don't know. And BD kind of has this I dare you to moment, um, and Montag takes him up on this dare and blasts him with the flamethrower and burns him to ashes. And then I, uh, he punches out a couple of his fellow firemen, um, knocks them out or beats them with... He just goes crazy on the firemen. And then the hound comes out of nowhere uh, and tries to kill Montag. And Montag manages to blast it as well with the flamethrower. And it stabs him in the leg with this poison needle um, after while he's blasting it. But Montag does escape for now. And Montag runs through the city. And he watches um, his own chase on the television uh, through the windows of people's houses. And everybody is cheering for him to be caught and killed. Um, they're watching the chase. The hound is after him. Um, and Montag uh, runs. And he's finally able to make it to the river and the forest, and he escapes. And maybe for the first time in his life, Montag then experiences uh, nature. He, he goes far outside the city um, and kind of gets away from all the lights and the sounds and, you know, sees trees and sees the river. And he, it's very alien to him. It's like, it's like he's entered a new world. And out here in the middle of all this dark, you know, primeval forest, he sees a fire in the woods. But Montag immediately recognizes that this is a different kind of fire than the fire he's used to, the fire he's known. Because this fire is being used for warmth and security. And the men that sit around this fire call to him to come and sit with them by the fire. And we finally meet, uh, we meet the guys that Montag has really been searching for this whole time. These guys are the resistance, basically. They are the, the people who are opposed to this culture and this dying society. And they're, they're what Montag set out to be from the beginning, but he didn't really know how. Because this isn't they aren't a bunch of guerrilla uh, soldiers in the woods, you know, carrying out terrorist organizations on the city. These guys are an intellectual resistance, and they understand that open warfare against the government is a losing battle. There's no way to win it. Uh, there are too few of them, and it would never work. And so what these men do, what these men are, they're all intellectuals. They are professors, teachers, priests, and pastors. They've read all the great books of science and philosophy and religion, and they memorize these books, 
and then they burn the books, because if they're caught with the books, they might be killed. But the authorities don't suspect um, that all of them are walking around with all of these books in their brains. They just look like homeless kind of people shambling around on the fringes of society. And their leader is a man named Granger. And Granger explains all this to Montag. And he tells him that he is Plato's Republic. He, is, he has read Plato's Republic and he has memorized the entire book. He tells Montag that others um, in the group are other very important and famous books of Western civilization. Um, and since Montag has learned Ecclesiastes and some of Revelation... Granger tells Montag that he will be Ecclesiastes along with some other man that is in this network of resistance. And if this other man dies, it will be up to uh, Montag to remember Ecclesiastes of the Bible. Granger also tells him something that Faber kind of hinted at earlier, that there is this war coming. And uh, this war is going to be an atomic war, that is going to, to destroy society completely. And they're all sitting around and they're waiting for this to happen. And they have this plan to rebuild society from the ashes, but they understand that it's probably going to take generations and generations to do it. And so Montag falls into this group and he is now kind of part of their clan and then we get to kind of the very end of the book, kind of, it smashes a lot of stuff in right at the end. Because as Montag is sitting around the fire, he's thinking about all these people that he left behind. And he has kind of visions of where they are. And the book is very artsy and uses kind of poetic language, but basically we see Mildred, and it's kind of, it's Montag thinking of her, but then you get to see her as the reader, and you see where Mildred is, and Mildred is in this motel, and she is staring at this TV screen that's right in front of her face, and uh, above her is falling on the city a nuclear bomb. And as the bomb falls kind of on the city, all of this is, as you read it, it's almost like it's in slow motion or in a, in a standstill frame of Mildred staring at the TV screen as the bomb is about to hit her building. And uh, Montag weeps for his wife. Um, it's, a, it's a very sad scene because... You just see her, and she's completely emotionless and just void of all humanity. And Montag is just beside himself, weeping for his wife in uh, in the woods. Um, we also see Faber, and Faber is on a bus uh, running from the city, and he's between cities um, on this bus, and the bombs are going to hit all these cities, so he's not going to make it to the next city. He's going to be kind of left in the wilderness. Uh, then the bombs hit, um, and the city is absolutely obliterated. And it's just like the men say, 
human society is destroyed. And Montag and the others, when the bombs hit, are clutching the earth and screaming and crying because it's this horrible, loud, terrifying moment. And once it's over and, you know, the dust is settling, Granger talks to Montag about a couple things. And the first one is the phoenix. Granger talks about the mythical phoenix and how it is comparable to humanity. And he says, we build ourselves up to these great civilizational heights, and then we burn and consume ourselves, and we have to rebuild from the ashes. And this time it's in a very literal sense. Um, but Granger says that they have something that the phoenix doesn't have, and that's the knowledge and truth of human history through all these books. The next idea Granger talks about is the factory of mirrors. And he explains that the thing that keeps mankind in a constant cycle of destroying itself is the fact that new generations always spit on and discount their ancestors and the customs of their ancestors. And he says humans don't learn the one lesson of history that is most important, and that's the reality of human nature. And Granger explains that the thing that must be done is to show everyone, show humanity who and what they are, and force themselves to look as if in a mirror. Only then, he thinks, can we finally move past this impulse to destroy ourselves. And he sees that as uh, something that will happen sometime in the future. We'll finally, we'll finally stop blowing ourselves up eventually. Uh, and then we get to the very end. And the very end of Fahrenheit 451, I think, is a very hopeful and happy ending, as opposed to 1984, which was a terribly just sad and hopeless ending where the protagonist is completely defeated and then killed. Instead of that, the end of this, we see Montag actually victorious, because Montag has been racking his brain to try to remember, word for word, the book of Ecclesiastes. And he's been having a hard time with this until the bomb went off. And suddenly all the noise of the world is gone. And as he's walking with these other men in the silence through the trees, um, in the last few lines of the book, all of a sudden he remembers... First, he remembers the ideas from the Bible. Um, he understands, he finally understands the concept of the verse from Ecclesiastes that he's been trying to figure out. And then suddenly, from nowhere, the exact words, well, not from nowhere, because the exact words from the Bible come to his mind and are reciting themselves in his head perfectly. And then more words that he didn't even read from before come to him. And it's this verse from Revelation that refers to the healing of nations. And it's hinted at very heavily here at the end that Montag is hearing the voice of God um, as the Bible is considered the words of God. So it leaves the reader with this very hopeful idea that Montag and these other men 
will be successful in their mission to kind of restart civilization because they will have the assistance of God leading them forward. Um, and that's why I really prefer, especially the ending of Fahrenheit 451 to 1984. Uh, I, I don't know why Fahrenheit 451 is so much more optimistic than 1984 or even, uh, Brave New World or Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, Brave New World, 1984 are all British novels. And they were all kind of written at the very end or towards the end of the kind of British Empire. And those authors that wrote them kind of saw World War One and World War Two. And I don't know, maybe that something in the in the British psyche was was scarred and broken enough to where it knocked the hope out of them. And Ray Bradbury, uh, when he writes this, it's a he's an American novelist, and it, I feel like uh, the the part of the book that's American is uh, this hopeful, optimistic outlook that even if everything is destroyed, then we will rebuild and and we will kind of rise from the ashes like a phoenix. And I think that's a, I think that is the right attitude to have. Um, I think we should all strive for that. So I'm at an hour. That's about long enough, I think. Um, I guess I will, uh, I might see you guys again before the end of the year if I get a, a wild hair or have something really interesting. But if I don't, I will see you on the other side of... 2022. And I'll see you in the new year. Thanks for listening to the Capo podcast. Thanks for your time. I'll catch you next time.